test. <laughs> yeah, you were thinking I was being like Thai anyway, weren't you? <laughs> Just read my mouth. All right, let's pray. Lord, as, I, um, as, as we turn to your words, um, help us to hear your voice because it is through your word that you speak to us. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, before I begin looking at Zechariah's prophecy, let's just back up to where, to, to just before this began. And it's what Dave talked about. Um, John the Baptist, if you remember, uh, I think um, Mark, Mark prophesied about this. Uh, but Zechariah, at, when John was uh, conceived, or was going to be conceived, uh, the angel told Zechariah, this is going to happen. And Zechariah basically said, oh yeah, prove it. And the angel said, okay, you're not going to speak for nine months. And he couldn't speak. Okay. And um, the child is born, John the Baptist is born. And we begin in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 59. And on the eighth day after John the Baptist's birth, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they, and they made signs to his father, inquiring what, uh, what he wanted him to be called. So it's a little bit like Ty. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And this is what he spoke. That, that gets us to, to uh, the sermon uh, passage for today. And it's, it's a bit of prophecy, but it's really interesting. And um, really, this is it's a long passage, and it really deserves about three sermons. So I'm going to sort of pick and choose as we go through some areas to highlight and to focus on. So um, after, after this, uh, after his father Zechariah was filled, uh, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And I want to begin there of being filled with the Holy Spirit because it has been dry for 400 years. You've already heard that, right? No word from God, no Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people kind of mm, individually at, at special times. All right? And beginning with the birth of Jesus, with the prophecies of his birth, to Elizabeth and Mary, the Holy Spirit begins to come. So we read in the birth story, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit, comes upon her, and Jesus is born. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies here. Simeon, who we're not going to be looking at during this Christmas season, but he uh, is also filled with the Holy Spirit. All are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see right from the beginning 
that it's like sprinkling. You know, it's not raining, but it's like sprinkling. You've been out on a day when it's just sprinkling. You're, you're like, is it beginning to rain? And, and you begin to realize it is. And that's what's happening. The Holy Spirit is beginning to, to sprinkle. Now, it's going to pour soon. The Holy Spirit's going to come in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, risen from the dead, and ascended. Then that sprinkle turns into a, a, just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know and to see that right from the beginning of Jesus' birth, that 400 years is done. And God's going to come, and God's going to come in a powerful way. And, and these people are beginning to, they're beginning to see it. They're beginning to feel it. And so you can, you can feel the anticipation that God, God is, do, is doing something. And it's amazing. So from Joel chapter 2, here's the prophecy about the Holy Spirit coming. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. So like rain, the Holy Spirit begins to be poured out on you and me. And then it says this. Zechariah continues. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I want to spend some time about that idea of visited because we talk about that at Christmas, right? God and flesh has come. But look at the picture I have up there. Do you recognize it? It's a girl and she's visiting her father and where's her father? When God visits in Jesus, when Jesus comes in flesh and visits us, what kind of world is Jesus coming to? We are held in bondage. It's not a pleasant world that he's coming to. I think at Christmas sometimes I get the thought that he's coming to a, a world that's happy and isn't it great to have Jesus here now with us? But have you ever been to a prison? They're kind of scary places. In fact, I've been to a couple of them. High security, maximum security prisons. And they have doors and they have locks and they have buzzers. And people all walk around not looking real happy. And you have to talk to people on a phone through glass. And you see this girl here putting her hands up against the glass because she wants to touch her father. And when it says that, Zechariah says, uh, blessed be the Lord God for he has visited, Jesus is coming to visit a very dark place because we are enslaved. We're not in prison, but we're enslaved. It says we're slaves to sin. He's coming to a world that hates him, hates him. When you read the Gospel of Mark, by chapter 3, 
They're planning to kill him. They don't even know him hardly. And they're ready to kill him. He's coming to a world where children die. Remember, he raised a child, a girl, from the dead. He's coming to a world where people are possessed by the demonic world and wreaking havoc on them. Remember that? We preached upon that in Matthew. There's a man out in the graveyard running around naked, screaming and shrieking. In fact, when the Jesus encounters the demons, they shriek because they hate him. He comes to a world where people are, mm, are lepers and they have to sit outside the community and they're separated from the rest of the body. He's coming to a world where people are lonely and outcast. He's coming to a world that just wants to touch God. Just like that girl wants to touch her father. That's the world Jesus is coming to. And it could not have been pleasant. One of the things that I realize when I go into prisons to visit people is the heaviness. It just feels heavy. And I imagine that when Jesus came to our world, there was a heaviness. He felt, he himself, not a sinner, but felt the weight of our sin upon him. And I can't imagine it was pleasant. I think when Jesus came, it wasn't all about hymns and wreaths and lights and candy canes and presents. Imagine that when he came to visit us, it was more like visiting a prison where people want to touch God. One of the interesting things about, um, uh, about Jesus, read when you read, notice how many times Jesus is touching people. He's touching. Because as that girl is showing us, people need to touch God. They need to touch God because they're broken and they're lonely and they're lost. And Jesus reaches out and touches people. In fact, it also says that when Jesus passed by, people just want to touch Jesus because they know if they touch Jesus, they're healed. Isn't that amazing? So, Zechariah begins, for he has visited, but he continues on. He says, he has visited and redeemed his people. He visits us. We're in bondage to slavery. It's as if we were in a prison, but he does something about it. See, when I go to visit a prisoner, there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is visit and talk and pray. But I can't release. I don't have the power and I don't have the authority. I can do nothing. But Jesus visits and redeems his people. He does something about it. He sets the prisoner free. In fact, John, Jesus says in John chapter 8, so if the Son sets you free, you will be freed Indeed, Jesus has the authority and Jesus has the power to free us from loneliness, to free us from disease, to free us from the bondage that sin keeps us in. And he does it through redemption, which is why here Zacharias says he's visited and redeemed. 
Now, this passage that Zach writes, this prophecy, is chock full of theological words. Every word that's significant in the Bible is in this prophecy. I want to look at redemption. Redemption means to set free from captivity. That's what it means. Which is why I put the picture of that girl there. She can do nothing. But Jesus has the, uh, the authority and the power and the ability to set us free. It means to set free from ca- captivity or slavery. It's a legal declaration. It's a legal declaration. The word means exactly price or payment by which releasing takes place. Thus, ransom, money. Among the Greeks, a ransom was often paid to free slaves. The, the word ransom and redeem are the same words in Greek, or almost the same. There's a little bit of difference, but, but you can translate them both as redeemed. That's what it means. It's really interesting. Josephus was a historian that was born at about the time that Jesus died. He, he had his issues with the Roman government, but eventually ended up writing history for the Romans. And this is what he says about Herod the Great. Writing the history, he says, quote, Herod, not knowing what had happened to his brother, because his brother was taken captive in a war, Herod, not knowing what had happened to his brother, hastened to ransom him from the enemy and was willing to pay a ransom for him to the amount of 300 talents. And now you have the idea of what a ransom is. A ransom is a price that is paid. Jesus comes to visit, and Jesus comes with the intention of doing something about his visit, which I cannot do, and you cannot do. In 1 Corinthians, and and there are many verses I could use, but this is a great one. You are bought with a price do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. He comes to visit so that you can touch him. Not through glass, but so you can touch God. You can touch Jesus. But it costs him. You know what it costs him? It costs him his life. That's a hefty price, don't you think? But Zechariah continues on. He says... Uh, we want to look at something else here. Um, I just thought it was interesting that Billy Graham says this. I've never known anyone to accept Christ's redemption later to regret it. But think about that. How many people get out of prison and go, nah, I really didn't want to get out? How many people have broken relationships and say, no, I like the brokenness in my life. I, I like it, really. How many people experience the redemption of Christ and say, nah, not good. I prefer unforgiveness as opposed to forgiveness. Not many. And so I want to look at a couple other terms that Zechariah mentions. He says, he has visited... He is redeemed. He's paid, a, he's paid a price for his people, the price of his life. 
How about that? You go to visit somebody and they don't take that life, they take your life for visiting. Think about it. They take your life for visiting somebody in prison. Really? How many of you would say, well, I'll go in prison. If you release my dad, I'll stay. No, that's not going to happen. He says, and has raised up a horn of salvation. There's another great word. A horn, when it says a horn of salvation, the Old Testament puts it in perspective. It talks about like the horn, uh, the horns of, of a bull, right? A little scary, or a buffalo, a little scary, right? You see those horns, you're thinking, no, 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 thank you. And it's simply a term meant in the Old Testament, brought over into the New Testament now, to mean strong, a strong man, a mighty man, somebody with exceptional power, and Jesus is powerful to save us and powerful enough to bring us into his family. And isn't that amazing? Salvation is a bigger concept than redeem. You've got to have all these concepts because they all talk about a different aspect of who God is and what God does, what Jesus does. So salvation is a bigger concept. So redemption is a legal declaration. It's a, it's a contract, if you will. A price is paid, you are released. Salvation is a declaration of who we belong to. Redemption doesn't tell you. Well, who are you released to? Well, salvation tells us. Redemption is transactional. Salvation is relational. We are saved from sin and death, and we are born again to Christ. We become the children of God. We are no longer slaves because of redemption. We're a child in the family of God because of salvation. And because of salvation, we're born in God's family. We're no longer slaves, but we're a member of a family. We're members of each other. And when we read Paul's epistles, he uses family language all the time. We just miss it sometimes. All the time. Brothers and sisters. You're all my brothers, all my sisters. Some of you my grandmas and grandpas. Some of you my moms and dads. It's so wonderful. Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the language of salvation. Language of redemption, very different. Price paid. Blood spilled out. Redemption born again. you got to have them both. But here's what's really interesting. When you think of redemption and salvation, I want you to think of 1 Peter, okay? And, and I'm going to spend some time here because it's absolutely fascinating. 1 Peter says this. Conduct, conduct yourselves with reverence. Some translations, that's translated fear. Same word, same concept. Conduct yourselves with reverence throughout the time of your exile, because we're not in heaven, we're in exile here on earth, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed, same word, that you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, not how we're purchased, 
That's not our, our, that's not our redemption. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So I want you to, to look at that verse and think about this. First of all, you inherit something from those who come before you, from your forefathers. You inherit feudal ways. That term feudal means being of no use, ways that are of no use, idle, emptiness, fruitfulness, useful, uh, uselessness, power, powerless, you're powerless, lacking truth. You inherit lies from those who go before you. Wonderful, isn't it? If you're not redeemed, you're passing something down to your kin that is not very good. And first Peter recognizes that. In fact, it's really bad. First Peter calls us to a, a redeemed life. Because in a redeemed life, we inherit something very different. I want to tell you a story. Uh, not, isn't it really not some facts? Um, fascinating. Uh, when I was in my doctoral program, my DMN program, we, uh, we spent some time talking about this. And, and uh, let me tell you about it. Um, it's about two different guys. The first guy is Jonathan Edwards. Second guy is Max Jukes. Now, that's not a picture of Max Jukes because Max Jukes and Jonathan Edwards lived at the same time. That's a relative, a descendant of Max Jukes, okay? And you'll find out why he's in prison, all right? Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan. He lived in the 1700s. Uh, he married his wife, Sarah, in 1727. They had 11 children, which was common in that era. Um, I have lots of relatives that have 10, 11, 12 kids. My grandmother, I think, uh, there are 12 in her family. So that was pretty common. But this is what is uncommon about uh, Jonathan and Sarah. Every night when Mr. Edward, uh, he was also the third president of Princeton College, which is in, and he went to Yale when he was 13 years old. Pretty smart guy, would you say? Every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each child. Every night. Jonathan's wife, Sarah, prayed, passed on a great godly legacy for 11 children. So this guy named A.E. Winthrop decided to uh, trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. He did it almost 150 years after the death of Jonathan Edwards. And his findings are remarkable. Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one United States vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. I'd be satisfied 
was simply knowing that all my children were saved. But I want you to see how remarkable this is. Max Jukes, on the other hand, his legacy came to people's attention when the family tree of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. 42 men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. He lived in New York at about the same time as Jonathan Edwards. Juke's family was uh, studied by a sociologist named Richard Dungale in 1877, and this is what he found out about Juke's. Juke's descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 uh, other convicts, 310 paupers, extremely poor people, uh, 440 were physically racked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 uh, descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. Do you see a difference? One inherited these evil ways. One saw the, the providence of being redeemed, a life redeemed. It's remarkable. These contrasting legacies provide an example of, uh, of what some people call the five-generation rule, which is this. How a parent raises their child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide influences not only their children, but the four generations to follow, for good or for evil. If you're spending like the, like the Edwards did, one hour blessing your children every night, you're going to get a different outcome. Very different outcome. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Even if you have no children, you can spend time with kids in church. You are a spiritual grandfather. You're a spiritual mother. You're a spiritual father. Kids need us to pour ourselves into them, and it lasts for generations. Now, you can't save them. They have to make their own decision to follow Christ. But as John the Baptist would say, make his way smooth. Straighten out the curved road. Fill in the valleys. Flatten out the mountains. Make it easy for them to see and receive Jesus. It's remarkable. And we have a choice. There's a saying that goes like this. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If the child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with fear, he learns to be apprehensive. If a child lives with pity, he learns to feel sorry for himself. If a child lives with jealousy, he learns to feel guilty. And then I would add in these. If a child lives with faithfulness, he learns faith. If a child lives with prayer, he learns to pray. If a child lives with self-control, he learns how to deny himself, pick up his cross, and to follow Jesus. Right? If you're redeemed, you'll pass on one thing. If you're not, you'll pass on the other. Four 
generations. It doesn't matter that your children's, uh, it matters that your children's children are saved. But if it's going to be, you have to flatten out the road for them, as John the Baptist indicates. The Zechariah's prophecy moves on. It says this. Just continue where we picked up. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved, another good theological word, which is similar to salvation, from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show the mercy, there's another great theological term, mercy, promise to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. There's another great one. I was going to spend time talking about covenant, and we'll have to wait. The oath that he swore to Father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered, there's another great term, from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness, another great term, and righteousness, another great term, before him all of our days. And I want to focus on just a couple words here. First, we've been set free from our enemies. Remember, Jesus redeemed us. He paid a price. And what he did was to set us free from our enemies. We have a couple that we need to mention here. First, the world is our enemy. The world is not for you. The world is against you. So when you read enemies, don't think like Bill who doesn't like me or my boss who kind of is a jerk to me. He's my enemy. Don't think of that. Think of it much, much more significantly. The world. The world distorts and makes... The reason John the Baptist comes and he has to make the way straight because the world makes it crooked. First John says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That the world hates you just like it hated Jesus. It despises you. You need to know that. We've been saved from our enemies, but we still have a battle to fight. The second enemy is Satan and the demonic. Satan hates you. Satan has lost to Jesus, right? Jesus defeated him on the cross. There's no battle with God. God's an overwhelming victor. So you know who Satan takes after? The children of God. Who? And me. Because we are vulnerable. Which is why, in Ephesians, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Jesus has redeemed us. He saved us. But we are still in a fight. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. So put on the full armor of God. The fight isn't just, um, is not against, against God. It's against us and our children. Have you been paying attention to the news? This is the most disgusting news I've seen on TV for a while. Do you know who's coming into our public libraries? Drag queens. If you've watched the news on TV, it's actually pretty disgusting. Satan and the world 
are after our children. Do you know what's being kept out of our public libraries? People like Kirk Cameron. Have you, have you followed that story? Kirk Cameron, a Christian guy, actor, done some wonderful Christian stuff. He wrote a book about the fruit of the Spirit. And he's gone to 50 different public libraries that allow drag queen hour, but will not allow him to come and read about the fruit of the Spirit. Do you think we're in a battle? Do you see how important your redemption is? And do you see how you can affect generations versus the world, which is seeking to affect generations? It's remarkable, isn't it? It's sad. It's disgusting. And then he says that we might worship without fear. This translation says we might serve him without fear. The word worship is the same word translated serve. I prefer the word worship. That we might worship him, worship him without fear or that we might worship him fearlessly. And we're almost done, but I wanted to give you this story about worship. In 1799, Napoleon's army was, uh, uh, was getting ready to attack a place called uh, Fieldkirk in Austria. The soldiers had spotted the Napoleon army on the ridge, and they were worried that they were about to be destroyed. And it was, it was Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, when they saw Napoleon's armies about ready to attack them, knowing that they would be decimated. So the elders of the village called, called a council meeting and said, what do you want to do? You want to be wiped out? We have so far trusted in our own devices and our own strength and against Napoleon is worthless. And so what they decided to do was go to worship on Easter morning. They went to worship to celebrate the risen Christ knowing that Napoleon was staying right there and was going to descend on them soon. They rang the Easter bells for Easter morning worship service. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I got to read this to get it right. It says, the council anticipated, um, uh, decided to worship, and the church bells rang. The enemy, hearing the sudden peal of the bells ringing, concluded the Austrian army had arrived during the night to defend the town before the service ended and they broke camp and left. Because fearlessly they worshipped. Knowing they could be destroyed, they worshipped. Very interesting. I'm trying to make this quick. But uh, at a church I was serving, something really bad had happened to a couple of families in the in the congregation. And it was really hard. And after thinking and praying about it, I decided that uh, what we'd do is we'd deal with this issue in worship around the, communi- around the communion table. And I saw some, a new family in the church, and I thought, great, they're coming to worship, and they're going to hear about some of our dirty laundry. So we talked about this with the broken body of Christ 
and how we were broken, and the blood of Christ poured out, and how we needed that redemption, salvation, how Christ makes all things new. Afterwards, they came through the line, and, um, and I was like, I can't wait to hear what they're going to say. <laughs> and they said, if that's how this church deals with this issue, we want to become a member. I was floored. I thought, wow. Worship is powerful. Never forsake worship. Not on vacation. Not when you visit. Don't let anything come between you and worship. It's a witness to the spiritual kingdom. Our worship is a witness to our world. Okay, we got to wrap this up pretty quick. So I'm going to fly through the next couple real quick. Uh, he says this. A new child. Now Zechariah is talking about John the Baptist. Okay, he's no longer talking about Christ. He's talking about John the Baptist. Will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you be, go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation. There's that word again. To, to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit, now he's talking about Christ again, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to all who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, a reference to Psalm 23, to guide our feet in the way, uh, in the path to peace. And I just want to highlight the importance of knowledge. Knowledge of salvation and knowledge of forgiveness. This is what we pass down to our children. Knowledge of Jesus and how he saves us, how he redeems us, and knowledge of forgiveness. And I want to encourage you not to just teach them, but to demonstrate that to them. I will never forget when my daughter Julia was in about uh, probably fifth grade. And I had done something that I thought was sinful. I, I don't know, I'd yelled at her, I think. I'd yelled in a way that was totally uncalled, all yelling's uncalled for. And so I went up to her and I said, Julia, I want to ask for your forgiveness. I didn't say I'm sorry. I said, I wanted to ask for your forgiveness. Much to my delight, about a month later, she came to me after yelling or doing something the kids do. And she said, Dad, I want to ask you for your forgiveness. I thought, where did she learn that? I'd like to think she learned from me, but she was also reading her Bible. She was also praying with us. And it was just a movement of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, um, I take this one verse further than what Dave wrote. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of public appearance of Israel. That's speaking of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist come to make the crooked straight. And that's why I have that sign up there. And he does that through knowledge. Knowledge of forgiveness and knowledge of salvation. So what are some of my takeaways? One, Jesus alone is strong to save. Turn, turn to Jesus 
and turn other people to Jesus. Therapists are great. I have no problem with therapists. My dad's a psychiatrist. That's great. But Jesus alone is strong to save. Jesus will change lives. Jesus will heal in ways that no one else can. No one else can. Second, my takeaway. Your redemption, my redemption and salvation will affect generations after you, after me. Teach and demonstrate what it means to have a relationship to God. If all you do is teach, but you do not demonstrate, it doesn't mean half of what you think it means. You have to teach, and then you have to demonstrate what you taught. It affects generations. One of the interesting things of going on Ancestry.com is I realized that I had we have Baptist pastors in my background. Going back to the Civil War, a chaplain. And before that, an abolitionist Baptist pastor. War, and, and Bonnie said, and pastors in the War of 1812. I come from a history of Baptist pastors. Wow. Thank you for making the way straight. And then finally, just worship. Worship. Powerful. And I pray that every morning you come here, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You learn about Christ. You go in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of things to learn, a lot of, a lot of big words in this prophecy of Zechariah's, but they're good. And we learn about salvation, we learn about redemption, and we learn about how it's not just about us, but it's about the generations that follow even though we can't pass redemption down. But we can teach it, and we can demonstrate it. So help us to do that. And then, Lord, there are people in our congregation that need our prayers. We think of Rosemary's son, Scott Smith, who's not doing well, back in the hospital. Pray for wisdom for the doctors. We pray that in addition to all the wisdom you give doctors, you lay your healing hand upon him. Pray for um, Sharon Rickerson's families, whose sister-in-law Karen passed away this past week after battle with cancer. Pray for your comfort for the whole family. It's always hard, even if we're expecting a death, to see somebody die and have that in our in our um, in, to experience that, even if we know we're going to see him again in the resurrection. It's still hard, and so I pray for the whole family, God, that they'd be aware of your presence with them at a time like this. We pray for the Christmas season as families gather, and we ask for safety as they travel, and we pray that as families gather together, I know there'll be many families where there's a rift, where there's um, discord, where, where relationships have been broken, and I pray for the redemption of those relationships. I pray for forgiveness and that people would turn to you to find the strength because there's nothing more than Satan would like to have than families gathered for, for, for Christmas and then to argue. Pray for a pastoral search, God, that you would lead us to the candidate that you have chosen for us.
We pray for our missionaries and for the variety of needs that missionaries follow or have. We ask these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.